Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products. Welcome to episode 28 here at the department. Uh, this is episode number four in our reevaluation <laughs> of the 2000s, which is actually a really good way to describe it because yeah. it is, it's, a, it's a nostalgic look back. We've gotten a lot of feedback on how looking back has been a really interesting reevaluation on how they, how everyone kind of lived through this time period. <laughs> Um, so this is, you know, the second in a very exciting world of hipsters. And we thought today that we would talk about some signature trends that really encapsulated the hipster culture um, that, you know, we look back at fondly, not fondly, indifferently. Uh, we're also going to do a new thing here. We got a lot of call-ins to the hotline and... <laughs> Amanda's going to address some of them. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of them also. But if you have any hipster stories to add, we would love if you left us a message on our hotline, particularly about the culture, the misogyny, or about any of the scammers back then, um, or anything about this episode or the last hipster, hipster episode. We kind of want to hear you know, um, about that. Uh, but, you know, the next episode, like I said, it's going to be kind of on this like misogyny and scammers. So if you do have something to talk about, we can include that. Um, yeah, with which is kind of like the dark underbelly of this movement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, actually, there's a ton of dark underbellies. I mean, you talked about uh, American Apparel and Terry Richardson in the last one. <laughs> and we're going to talk about some other dark underbellies, this, this one. I feel like we're like on a journey here along with mm -hmm. all of you listeners where, you know, when we started this series, we thought we might do one, maybe two episodes just on the hipsters and we totally know, get her done and move on. But like... We're just unpacking the stuff alongside you, and it's been so fascinating to take a step back and really critically evaluate that subculture. I, right. I'm enjoying it so much, and and why it was like that, and how and where it kind of went, like yeah. all those kind of those interesting tidbits that you can only look back on, you know, 15 years later. <laughs> <laughs> and actually recognize mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the phone number you can reach us at is 717-925-7417. And we share it with Close Horse, Amanda's other podcast. So it might have a, an, a, a message that is Close Horse, but you'll get, you'll get us as well. Um, you can find that number on our website, uh, thedepartment.world, as, as well as all of our show notes and various images that can go along with this episode. Um, you can also find us on Instagram um, at, at underscore the underscore department, um, where we kind of do inside jokes and little treasures and stories and all of these little things <laughs> that kind of, kind of pop up um, within the week. And then, you know, um, just as a reminder that we do every single week, you know, we live off of these comments and star ratings that you leave us on Apple Podcasts. So if you have the app, you know, please 
do us a solid and give us a star rating or leave a quick review. We really appreciate it. So as Kim mentioned, I'm very excited to announce that we have some hotline messages. (gasps) We actually have more than I'm going to share with you today. Today, I really focused on the 2000s hipster-related messages. But we are sitting on the other messages. I have them. They're downloaded to my computer. We're going to work them in in the coming episodes. I promise we haven't forgotten about you. I mean, Kim totally forgot about you, but I did not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Our first message today is from Janelle, who is here to remind us of some denim brands that, to be honest, I had completely forgotten about. Hi, Amanda and Kim. This is Janelle, and this is just a call-in for the department. This is my first time calling in. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, I just wanted to say that I listened to your um, 2000 uh, podcast yesterday, and I just enjoyed them so much. It just reminded me of my time living during that time. Uh, At the time, I worked in New York for a company. I worked for Mud Jeans, and then I worked for Plug Jeans, Um, and I just like so remember the buyers going to LA during that time, coming back with like a million kits and bags, like in their velour jumpsuits, track suits. Um, and, you know, that was my perception of LA was kits and velour jumpsuits <laughs> and just like sneakers, that very LA style. Um so, I don't know. Thanks for just bringing back those memories, and I'm excited to listen to uh, your next podcast today. All right. Bye, guys. So, Kim, I had totally forgotten about mud, and I had especially forgotten about plug jeans. Um, do you have – I don't even remember plug jeans. I might jeans. be remembering these incorrectly, but I think it was with a double G. <laughs> plug <laughs> Wait, was were they at the more uh, mass stores? I remember mud being something that you could get hmm. at like Target. I, I mean, I remember mud definitely being at Kohl's. Okay, Kohl's. Oh yeah, plug. Apparently, you can still buy plug jeans at Kohl's. Mm, okay, yeah, interesting. Um, so plug is still around. Anyway, um, do you have any other forgotten denim brands of the aughts that you're suddenly remembering now? Because I was thinking the other day when I first heard this message from Janelle. About built by Wendy. Yes, I loved built by Wendy because that was oh, that was me too. That was like a that was a New York thing. Totally, and she did that line of like premium denim in the aughts with mm. Wrangler. And Dustin oh, and I talked yes. about it all the time. We were such huge fans. We sold them at Urban Outfitters. Mm-hmm. They were actually like really nice denim, like really would hold up. Uh they, of course, were, like, boot cut. <laughs> yeah, of course. They were boot cut. You're going to talk about skinny jeans later. Yeah. This was, like, the precursor to that. I mean, wait. I loved from, from Built by Wendy. It was her T-shirts were the best. Oh, yes. They would have the collections of the people. Yes. It would be, like, different, different amazing women. It was kind of, like, the icons. Yes. And she also did – this is all coming back to me right now. She did a really amazing book about sewing that I actually still own. <gasps> yes. I think it's called Sew You. 
Uh, mm-hmm. And it's it's really cool. Yeah. It's uh, his. It was that that DIY. Yeah, period. yeah. Uh, I did look, and Built by Wendy is still around, um, and is still pretty cute, you know. And it's like slow fashion. Mm-hmm. I think Built by Wendy was kind of like the original slow fashion of the century. Well, I remember she was featured in like all of the cool magazines, which is how she kind of built oh, herself up. Like she was sure. in nylon, you know. And yeah, like, but she's yeah. not being featured in those exactly in the same way anymore, which is probably why we don't see her. The other thing that this made me think of were the like a boot cut giant brands of that era. So seven citizens, these are both still around, Mm -hmm. of course, and diesel. Yeah. I'm not much of a denim person and I never really have been. But when I was like at my brokest in the early aughts using a bicycle as my primary mode of transportation for years, I would buy these Levi's boot mm-hmm. cuts. I think they were a 513 at Fred Meyer, which is a mm-hmm. grocery store that also sells clothes. And I think I may have taken you there when you visited Portland. And I would wear oh, those yes. under dresses until they like disintegrated because yeah. it was the odds and that was a good look. Okay, guys? Well, it was I a remember good look. In high school, boot cut was kind of like on the threshold of being cool. And yeah. I would go to Kohl's and I would go to the men's section and they had some boot cuts that were actually made for like cowboy boots. You know what I mean? Yeah. They were like the real boot cut. They didn't fit amazingly, but I would just wear those. I love those. They had like a little bit of stretch in them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then of course I started working at um, Shop Up and I had all pass access to Seven Jeans, Citizens. Remember Lucky? Oh yeah. I mean, they're still around too, but you know, they, they declared bankruptcy last year and they yeah. were bought by the company that owns a lot of malls that they're oh, in yeah. along I, with Forever 21. I feel like most people that work in fashion have worked for Lucky, which always kind of was mind blowing. Cause I'm just like, I know. they're still around. And I constantly, you know, you know, we're, uh, we've, we've been, been trying to hire over at Craftlands and, you know, and so, you know, everyone's going through, um, you know, interviews and, and job applications and all these things. And I just, I keep getting resumes from people that were lucky and I'm like, still, still lucky. <laughs> I mean, I was like, where is this being sold? I remember when you and I were at Nasty Gal, um, there was such high turnover for the planners. Like it was like, you couldn't get mm-hmm. to attach to your planner because they would leave in three months yeah. or fall asleep on the job like yours. Oh yes. I remember that one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> who literally would fall asleep in meetings all the time and disappear in the bathroom for like yes. six hours. Like it was that. And then remember he Holders. came back and he was like sexy sort of, it was very weird. That was really funny. He was like wearing sunglasses. It was like, yeah, it was like he had like a makeover. <laughs> he was like it, a hipster now. <laughs> it was so weird. It was like the strangest person. Yes, of course. <laughs> anyway, so the hipster, the hipsters, the planners were always leaving and I swear most of them ended up going to lucky. I mean, and I was always like, what? Lucky's still in business? It was always shocking to me even then. It must have been like a pretty stable – I mean, I don't know if it was stable, but, um, you know, it must have been a good gig. It must have been, right? Because people would Mm -hmm. go back. Mm -hmm. Um, That's – a lot of the denim world jobs are like that. And if you're a denim expert, that's kind of where you stick your career. You know, you stick Mm -hmm. it out there. Um, Okay. Well, our next message is from Natalie and she's going to tell us about pizza, which as soon as I listened to this message, I was like, oh my God, Natalie's so right. How do we forget about pizza? And she's also going to talk about being a hipster parent. So it really resonated with me. 
Hi, this is Natalie, long-time listener, first-time caller. I just finished listening to the department episode about hipsters. And while I was listening to it, I was laughing out loud. Had to pause um, to share some stories with my husband. It was so funny. When we travel, the first thing he does is look for dive bars. Hipsters love a good dive bar. He's from Portland, too, um, and there's a thing about um, about hipsters and pizza. I know people who love pizza so much that they have pizza tattoos, like slices with little smiley faces, like pizza heart. Like some people I know even got friendship pizza tattoos where they all have the same pizza tattoo. Um, anyway, the whole hipster pizza thing was funny. So another thing I wanted to say or share is that um, I've been labeled a hipster, um, but have pretty much tried to deny it my whole life, <laughs> my whole life ever since. Um, I felt like I wasn't that hipster, maybe just a little. Um, I mean, we live in what Forbes once said was one of America's hippest hipster neighborhoods. Um, our family wore American apparel, like it was our uniform. Um, I still have. And my husband, we both still have some American Apparel t-shirts that we wear. They're pretty thin, but we still wear them. Anyway, um, I don't think it was until a few years ago when our kids started calling us hipsters that I finally, like, embraced it. Um, when I was listening back to the episode, brought back so many memories. Like, I'm just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm remembering everything. Um, I was ridiculous. I wouldn't allow my kids to wear any branded clothing, so they really only wore American apparel. I would sew these little monsters, robots, owls, out of cell onto the shirts. They could have some fun tees like the other kids. Um, I'd probably even put a bird on one of them. But our kids wouldn't be caught dead in a Disney branded T-shirt. Um, God, I was so ridiculous back then. Anyway, uh, this is a good one. Really enjoyed it. Um, I love your podcast. Love how your friendship really comes through. Um, when you guys start laughing and stuff, it makes me smile and laugh. And, um, anyway, I love it. Great. Bye. Oh, that's so, so sweet what she says at the end. I know. She sees our friendship coming through. That is so sweet. It is. And I completely agree about the dive bar thing. Oh, uh, you know what, Kim, it's like so <laughs> deeply it. ingrained in us, uh-huh. but like, I don't even think we think about it. Mm-mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. I mean, when you used to live here, we would go to like the ye old tavern all the oh, time. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. Um, what was the, 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 the new girl bar? Um, the Prince. Oh, the Prince. I love the Prince. Oh. I love it. I love it. It's like that authentic amazingness. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I. It's like funny. I've been going to dive bars for so long that I don't even think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And then when Natalie said that, I was like, oh, wait, is that a hipster thing? I guess it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, w- when I was in Mad- Madison, we would have um, two, for, two for Tuesdays at the Paradise at the Dice, it was called. And that was just like the scene. Every Tuesday, you would go and it would $2 rail cocktails. So oh, obviously, it was like, appealing <laughs> to to a group of people that liked a deal, but also liked the authentic element. We had this really interesting bar in Portland that I would say 
was the ultimate hipster bar in Portland at the peak of the Portland hipster scene. And it was where you went and you knew everyone was going to be really cool and really attractive. And they were always going to be playing the best music. And it was called The Tube. And what was weird about it is The Tube was definitely in every other way a dive bar. You know, like cheap drinks, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of disgusting bathrooms, like that kind of thing. But for reasons I don't know... It had this really crazy, like, futuristic 2001 A Space Odyssey interior that was literally a white tube that you were inside. And it was very, very small. And, you know, that's why it was called The Tube. And it was just – I have so many good memories there. I also have bad memories that have come out of that place too. But they would always have crazy – drink specials that were like two or three dollars but they'd be really weird like i remember one night there this drink special was called the sausage taco which i think is maybe some sort of euphemism that i'm not quite getting but Mm. it was like watermelon pucker and vodka mixed with something else and we put all of our cash in the middle of the table and we were like we're spending all of this on sausage tacos and i was so drunk that i had to walk my bike home (laughs) Like wow. I walked like four miles home because I could not function. <laughs> oh, so, gosh. Yes. Anyway, but it was a dive bar nonetheless. Um, mm-hmm. I also can't believe that we forgot about pizza. I know. I can't believe we forgot about it. <laughs> Do you know anyone with a pizza tattoo? Yes. I remember there was this – it was one of one of my favorite pizza tattoos. I totally forgot who had it. But I remember it was like Garfield on a skateboard chasing a piece of pizza. That's amazing. (laughs) What a tattoo. Uh If you remember who this is, we need to get a picture. Right. I'm trying to remember. I feel like, I don't know. (laughs) I also just wanted to say that uh, I tried to impose the same sort of hipster policies on raising Dylan. But it was the grandparents who just ruined it with the <gasps> Disney DVDs yes. and the Disney princess dolls. And one time Dylan was like, hey, have you ever – I mean, she must have been like four or five. Have you ever been to the restaurant near Gam's house? And I was like, what restaurant? And she's like, I don't know what it's called, but it's near Gam's house. And when you're a little kid, you get a special meal in a box with a toy. Oh. And I was like – McDonald's? And she said, yeah, have you ever heard of it? And I was like, oh, you mean this is like a little local spot, McDonald's? (laughs) When you have a kid, you just have to let go sometimes. Exactly. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay. Well, our last message is from Rebecca. Hey, it's Rebecca from Old Flame Mending. I just got done listening the hipster episode and I was just I'm thinking a lot about race and how um, I think it was Amanda who said that the hipster like the whole hipster um, culture was about it really centered around white people and white people liking stuff ironically and I just think that this is such an important point. And it's also just like really wild to think about how those same people who are hipsters, and I would include myself in this, um, 
probably did some, like, pretty, like, racist shit. Uh, the ironic. Um, and, like, things that we would, like, never do now. Um, and it's just really weird how, like, how much 10 years can really make a difference in people's perspective. Um, and I was, like, feeling really nostalgic also about that time because I was, like, coming of age in 2000 and, you know, the late 2000s. I graduated from high school in 2009, and so I'm, like, I'm, you know, very much a millennial, and so I feel like as I was coming into my own in my 20s, um, I was experiencing kind of, like, the shift from, like, hipster being, like, more of this, uh, like, counterculture thing into it becoming more mainstream and co-opted, and I remember... Um, at Urban Outfitters, there was that book that they sold called Stuff White People Like. Um, and I feel like that was kind of like a manual in a way to being a hipster. And I just think about how that book would just like never be on a shelf today. Um, and I would just be interested to hear more about your thoughts on kind of like hipster culture's inherent racism. Um, thank you so much for that episode, though. I I really enjoyed it, and it made me super nostalgic. I just got done with a nice hot, long shower and listened to Regina Spector, and um, that's kind of what inspired me thinking about stuff white, white people like. So thank you. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so Kim, do you remember stuff white people like? Very vaguely. I do remember being in urban and picking up and just being like, wow, that is very bold. <laughs> <laughs> and laughing. Well, I like I thought it was funny. <laughs> well, okay, so stuff white people like, which I had forgotten about until Rebecca totally. called in about, and I was like, oh my God, this is like leading me down so many paths here it and in a good way. So it actually began as a blog, which you can still visit. It hasn't been updated since 2010. So it feels like the web design is, is like a relic. It's really funny it, to see yeah. how much websites have changed in just 10 years, I guess 11 years now. It's like a relic. Yeah. It really it's is. really I, funny. Yeah. Cause we talked about this a little bit earlier and I looked it up and I was like, <laughs> so, according to Wikipedia, the blog was created in January 2008 by a white Canadian. We're getting Again. a lot of Canadians on here. I know. I know. Again. Um, what was happening? I don't know. The Canadians, man, they're steering the hipster culture in the United States in the aughts. It's really interesting, actually. It's interesting. I know. Uh, so, his name was Christian Lander, and he was an copywriter based in LA. He grew up in Toronto. I also read in a totally different article that he was an aspiring comedian, which mm. sounds about right to me, right? Yeah. He co-authored the site with his Filipino Canadian friend, Miles Valentine, after Valentine teased him for watching the HBO television series, The Wire, ostensibly like white people love The Wire. That was the conceit, right? 
This blog became popular very quickly, registering over 300,000 daily hits and over 40 million total hits by the end of September 2008. Now, I'm trying to remember Perez Hilton's numbers, and I think these are lower, but Mm -hmm. still, wow, right? In one year, you know? Yeah, it's still a lot, definitely. Um, Although the blog has, quote, spurred an outpouring from those who view it as offensive and racist, it is not about the interests of all white people, but rather a stereotype of affluent, environmentally, and socially conscious anti-corporate white North Americans who typically hold a degree in the liberal arts. And I would just say this came from Wikipedia. Uh, I feel like the writer of stuff white people like wrote that because it's, I, it's just a little too, it, it's a little too conceited. Do you know what I mean? Like these are just like the best people. They're worried about the environment. They're super socially conscious and they're anti-corporate, which sounds like everything that hipsters stood for, but we know it's a lot more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. So I sort of call bullshit on that description, although there is a kernel in there that seems right to me. Definitely the affluent uh, white North Americans, that that part holds true to me. So the book, also called Stuff White People Like, A Definitive Guide to the Unique Tastes of Millions, was published in 2008, that same year. This has literally got to be the fastest book deal I've ever heard of. But I do think this was like, the era of like, oh, your website is popular. Here's a book yes, deal. You know? It was, right? Your blog. Like, oh, let's yeah. just turn your blog into a book. And it has to be sellable at Urban Outfitters. Like, yes, that's exactly. Caveat, right? And it was on the New York Times bestsellers list for months, thanks in part to the gazillions of units sold at Urban Outfitters. Like, I specifically remember this being a top seller for at least a year. White people love Urban Outfitters and they love things white people like. Yes. So you probably ask yourself, you know, we're both white. What kind of things do white people like? Well, it turns out they like sushi, yoga, most stuff, shorts, coffee, farmer's <laughs> markets, things, to be honest, that seem as if they could, oh, I don't know, be liked by people of all races. Exactly. Yes. It's like, oh, no, this is just our thing, okay? Uh it's like what Rebecca said that like people did and said things back there that back then that like now in 2021, I mean, you would exactly hopefully be ashamed of, although exactly I feel like this book would still sell right now. Um, and I'm going to also preface this by saying I expected to see a lot more criticism of this book on the internet than I found. I was very disappointed actually, but it might just be because people forgot about it. I don't know. I mean, I actually, I went on to Amazon and mm-hmm. tried to look for some reviews. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't seeing a lot of bad reviews. I was seeing people being like, is this a racist book? I can't figure <laughs> it out. Like, it was really... <laughs> but like I said, and we're like, like to your point, people haven't looked for it or looked at it. Yeah, I it, think or that's written part a of review it. in like seven years. Right, because why would they? I will say, I did notice there were some weird comments out there at the in 2008 about this book that were like, this book is racist, Mm -hmm. but not because of the reasons I'm about to tell you, but instead because white people were like, I can't believe you are making fun of us. (gasps) That's racist. And we know that in fact, the oppressor cannot be oppressed. It's not Mm -hmm. racism, right? That's a basic lesson in racism for anyone who's new to it. 
my problem with this book is basically we're so narcissistic that we're like, hey, we're just going to totally co-opt everything good for ourselves and gatekeep it from people of color. Mm -hmm. We're going to say sushi, which is in fact from Japan, that's a white people thing. You know what? We're also going to take yoga. Mostef, I know you're black. We're going to take you too. Gosh. You know what I mean? <laughs> like coffee, which is like an international <laughs> beverage, you know? <laughs> it's it's ours. ridiculous. The farmer's market where most of the produce has been picked by Latinx, you know, migrant farm workers. We're going to take that also, okay? It's oh. ours. We're white. It's so fucked up. In case you're wondering. I do not like this, okay? No. I also am just going to tell you that I don't think it's funny. It's To me, it's along the lines of, you know, you're a redneck when, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Also, not funny. I found, I found one article on the entire internet that seemed to get at what I'm thinking, but not completely. I'll tell you that. But it was 2008. Mm -hmm. um, and it's from the New Republic. It's called why white people like stuff white people like. And it broke down why white people really responded to this blog and book so much. The writer Adam Sternberg said, quote, with this brand of comedy, the goal is to comfort rather than challenge or disturb mm -hmm. the audience. Agreed, right? Yeah. He went on to break it all down, quote, in fact, all the site's entries while superficially chiding, can actually be divided into three very comforting categories. One, entries that don't reflect your lifestyle choices like going nuts on St. Patrick's Day or running marathons and therefore make you feel superior. Two, entries that do reflect your lifestyle choices like Apple products, recycling, and therefore make you feel like you're in on the joke and that you're good-humored enough to laugh at yourself and therefore make you feel superior. And three, entries that nod to commonly held comic stereotypes, white people like assist in basketball and standing still at concerts, and therefore, because you recognize them, it also makes you feel superior. He summarizes it by saying, quote, because if there's one thing pe white people really like, it's pretending to poke fun at themselves while actually being allowed mm -hmm. to feel superior. Mm -hmm. I think also during this time period, there was, you know, it was whoever could be most shocking mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. there was just no accountability and there was no real, you know, it, it was just this time period where you can kind of do whatever you wanted. I mean, you could literally show your breasts on an ad for t-shirts and this was just some sort of like, okay, let's just keep topping it. Let's see what we can get away with more. Let's see how insulting or, undermining let's see how bad we can get with and still we'll we'll get a massive following totally totally and remember or if you i maybe it's not even remember but stuff white people like would have not been part of that mainstream culture yeah of like you know rock of love and ed hardy this was this was a hipster product right Someone left a comment on the stuff white people like blog in 2008 the comments are still there it also got to the core of it. They said, quote, white people also enjoy being critical, but not necessarily in a constructive way. Absolutely. And I was like, finally, someone is go. burning them. There you do, go. Right? Right. And I do think this really gets to the core of why the primarily white hipsters, mm -hmm. we talked about that. It was, I mean, yes, there were other people in the hipsters group, but let's be really honest here. 
it was a majority white group of people, right? Mm-hmm. Well, because it was, like we said, it was like the privileged, a lot of it was really privileged. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I mean, not all of it, but a But a chunk. lot, but a lot. And they loved themselves some ironic racism that wasn't, mm-hmm. I will say, actually ironic and was in fact actually racist and damaging. Mm -hmm. And this goes back all the way to all of the faux, ironic, racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, homophobic stuff and vice. Like Dustin and I have been talking about this nonstop since last week's episode, how now that you know the truth about what goes on at Vice and about Gavin McGinnis, you can't even think of an old issue of Vice without wanting to just like feel, well, just feeling queasy, I guess, right? Just puke a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah. The hipsters felt that they were superior to the Mm -hmm. mainstream culture, which we talked about last week. And to be fair, it maybe wasn't that hard to feel superior when you looked at how messy the mainstream culture was at the time with Rock of Love and Celebutons and Perez Hilton and all the other stuff we talked about. And ironically participating in just about everything was a way that the hipsters could maintain that oh-so-rewarding feeling of superiority. Today, Kim and I are going to talk a lot about hipster signature stuff. And I would say that irony belongs on that list, but like irony to a sad, disgusting fault. Like ironically listening to Alanis Morissette's song, Ironic, and making fun of it because you hate it, but ironically listening to it all the time. Like I don't understand it. Right. And then those same people would find themselves in 2019, not ironically karaokeing Alanis Morissette when they're out with their friends, because (laughs) they know all their words from listening to it so many times, ironically and the odds. And it's nostalgic. Yeah. And it's nostalgic. Uh Right. So, Ironically, enjoying various types of media was such a big part of this hipster lifestyle, which is, in my opinion, very sad because why would you waste your time on anything that you don't actually like? There's a whole argument there that these people actually really did like that stuff. Let's be real here, right? Mm -hmm. There was also ironically appropriating Black, Latinx, Asian, and Indigenous cultures really all the cultures that aren't white, but also ironically co-opting the cultures of poor white Americans too, like throwing Mm -hmm. white trash parties, using the hashtag trailer trash. I mean, Dustin was asked to DJ a white trash themed party, (laughs) turned it down. This was the disgusting end of the spectrum of irony. Like there was the sad end of people watching TV shows and listening to music that they allegedly didn't actually like just for the sake of irony that's just depressing right it's kind of sad you're wasting your time why don't you do something that you really like or conversely admit that you really do like these things the dark disgusting end is like ironically appropriating all these cultures and really just making fun of them right yeah and and that irony can then gain a following so it wasn't like just one person being ironic it's like oh well it's if everyone believes that it's ironic, you can change the perception of the racist act into being something culturally appropriate. And I will say this stuff is really insidious. For example, I've never been a fan of R. Kelly's music. It's just not, I, I'm like, was not into no. R&B for a very long time. And unlike a lot of other people, I was very aware 
of all the weird stuff that he was doing with girls because I lived in Chicago for a while and it was in the news a lot there. So I knew about that stuff. And to find, remember when he did that series of videos or maybe it was like one whole thing and it was called Trapped in the Closet. Suddenly it was like hipsters were watching Trapped in the Closet all the time and singing all the songs and supposedly it was just ironic. And it made me question like, why am I so uptight that I just can't give R. Kelly a chance? You know, maybe I should listen to some R. Kelly albums and I will find that I too can ironically <laughs> enjoy R. Kelly. And so these things get into your head and then you start to question your own values, right? Yes, exactly. Of course, we all know now that R. Kelly sucks and is a terrible person. And so mm-hmm. I'm glad I stuck to my guns there. But when we talk about the hipster's love of, quote, ironic racism, which I I can't even believe that that's a phrase anyone's ever typed, much less uh, yes. I typed it out into our into our outline tonight. It's really based in this idea of feeling superior to quote actual racists. Oh yes, that's amazing. Yes, and I'm just gonna say this still goes on now. This still goes on now, where people will like. I remember one of my friends saying, "Hey, if." If, you know, racists like Trump so much, why don't they just let him be president of Walmart? And I was like, well, actually, Walmart is a place where people with not a lot of money shop and it has nothing to do with, like, voting for Trump and you're being really classist right now, you know? But the idea was, like, we're superior to these people who shop at Walmart and vote for Trump. You know, like, it's it's Mm -hmm. not gone and it's very rooted in classism. I read a really great 2012 Jezebel article by Lindy West called A Complete Guide to Hipster Racism. And it's funny, but it's also just like brutally correct. She says, quote, it's the gentler, more clueless and more Mm -hmm. insidious cousin of a hick and a hood, meaning like, you know, a KKK dude. The domain of educated middle class white people who believe that not wanting to be racist makes it okay for them to be totally racist. Mm -hmm. But I went to college. I can't be racist. Yeah. Turns out you can. Later, she says, quote, sure, you can't say racist things anymore, but you can pretend to say them, which it turns out is pretty much the exact same thing. I think that, you know, if you look back at the hipster racism that was happening um, and the ironic racism that was happening in the aughts, and seeing how it spread into the Audis all the way up until this year mm-hmm. and just the complete lack of clarity and education, you know, it, it it's, it's kind of obvious why we had, you know, all these, you know, influencers and stuff, you know, getting called out for their racism because like, nobody really learned a lesson. Yeah. I mean, well, Let's be honest. Mm -mm. They don't teach racism in school. We don't even talk about it in public school. I only had some classes in college where we talked about it in terms of like literature and stuff that we'd read. But we never were really breaking down all the ways in which racism manifests itself. So when we're in this hipster zone of the aughts, we are thinking racism is people who are in the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. It is people who have Confederate flags. 
Although I did know some hipsters who ironically had those and I I can't even go there. Those people are racist. Sorry. But we thought, okay, there's either you're overtly racist. There was this like caricature everyone had in mind of some guy sitting on his porch in the South somewhere with like a banjo, Uh you know, drinking moonshine and looking at a Confederate flag, something like that. Or you're not racist. Like that was it. We never had talked about how racism is part of every system of our society, you know? That like Lena Lena Dunham can cast, a, you know, in 2000, what, I don't know, 12, 15, 16, cast an entire like women's group on, on her show with just women and then refuse to bring in any women of color to be a part of the group. Exactly. That's racist. That's racist. That's right, right. Look at Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. Did they ever had any people of color on that show? I that's mean, a good question. That's the thing is like the ideas around racism were like it's either just so overt or it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and we're better than that. So therefore, we can say and do all of these very racist things and not know. And there was no reckoning of that. Exactly. So, like, yeah, there was there was just no accountability. Right. You could just get right. away with whatever. You could literally get away with I mean, someone could get away with masturbating in front of their employees, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I would say like that is very true that we're gonna talk about misogyny, like the the misogyny of the hipster movement specifically in the next episode. But we saw that finally, it's like we'd been mm-hmm. static. In terms of the rec- the reckoning of that until – I mean, when when did Me Too really blow up? Like 2018? Yes. It was that sound about right, right around the, the Trump when, – when Trump – Right. It was – that two, was it 2017 was, or 2018? Two, it might have been 2017. That was when that really – that reckoning finally mm-hmm. happened. And I – we'll talk about this more in the next episode, but I've been having really incredible conversations with a lot of listeners this week on Instagram and friends of mine about – our experiences basically from the aughts until 2017 um, as women with, you know, abusers of all types who kind of flew under the radar because it was like culturally our society was stalled Mm -hmm. in terms of becoming more progressive. I guess there were, there were some gains in terms of gay rights maybe in that era, but I feel like when we talk about sexism and racism transphobia, all of that, that's a really recent thing mm-hmm. for us. Well, I mean, obviously, the discussion about racism just started yes. last year. I mean, I feel like the hipsters were just too preoccupied going out partying and being oh, yeah. in, and being in the scene that it, nothing else really mattered. And I think that's a really important call out. That goes back to what I was saying earlier where I was like, I'm pretty sure whoever wrote this on on Wikipedia is actually the person behind mm-hmm. stuff white people like because there was this air of superiority that we are the anti-corporate, super liberal, progressive values, creative. We're like the moral compass of this world, <laughs> right? Yeah, the, the the feeling of superiority was so extreme, and ultimately, all we did was party uh-huh. and buy shit. Uh-huh. Exactly. And even the people I knew who were more politically activated still engaged in a lot of misogynist mm-hmm. and racist behavior. And yes, it's because that 
we as a society, especially here in the United States, have never had these conversations until recently. Mm -hmm. But it's really unfortunate because I feel like a lot of people have been in this weird holding pattern where they think this stuff is okay. And now they're angry because they're finding out after practicing this kind of behavior for decades that it's not okay. And that's where you get these people so paranoid about like cancel culture and whatnot. And it's like, no, it's just like, Mm -hmm. this was long overdue. Right. Well, I mean, you know, like you're saying, it's like the elitism came from, you know, it's like, oh, whatever they perceived of value, like, for example, doing some sort of social, um, social justice campaigning, that was because they believed it would make them more elite, not because they actually, I mean, I'm not saying everybody here, but like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think I know, I definitely knew a lot of people that, you know, took part in this elitism at the sake of like actual social justice (laughs) and yeah yeah. (laughs) you know or or i'm a feminist but really they're not at all they're just using it as a term to seem elite oh for sure that's the person who's like (laughs) i'm a feminist also i don't have any friends or women because i don't get along with other girls because i'm not like them you know or like dustin and i had a conversation last year we were talking about someone i'm not going to name their names on here but they are one of the ultimate hipsters of the aughts, I'll say that, and they're also really well known for like their liberal thinking um, and being very progressive. And I was telling him how I'd had a really creepy run-in with this guy at a show, and he would like not leave me alone, and he was all over and made me feel really uncomfortable, and it was really disappointing because I had thought he was so cool. And Dustin, for a moment, who is an awesome dude almost didn't believe me and thought I was confused because he was like, how, how could he be that way? Like he's, he's this like paragon of progressive virtue basically. And I was like, here's the deal, dude, ask any other women who grew up in that era. Like the guys who were the most progressive who would come and introduce Mm -hmm. you to themselves to you as a feminist or some nonsense were the ones who were the most abusive. Yes. And that is like, I swear by that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, it was like a manipulation technique. And you know what? He wasn't the only person I knew engaging in creepy behavior. So I guess what I'm saying here is that, yes, there were people who really Mm -hmm. believed in these things. And I don't want to alienate them. They really meant it. And they were – but there were a lot of people who didn't to a certain extent. Um, So in this article by Lindy West, she goes on to unpack some of the most common versions of hipster racism. And this was like – Oh my gosh, Kim, it was like taking a walk down memory lane for me. Mm-hmm. The first one she calls, quote, teehee, aren't I adorable? She says, quote, this category includes things like wide-eyed acoustic covers of hip-hop songs, <laughs> suburban oh, white girls flashing gang signs, and this tweet from Zoe Deschanel. Ha ha, home from tour and first mm-hmm. things first, new girl episodes I missed, hashtag thug life. What? And I will say that I saw a lot of this in Portland, girls covering Dr. Dre using a ukulele and totally including the Mm N-word. It's ironic. It's irony (laughs) right there. Uh, Yeah. Lots of like hashtag thug life, you know, even white people who were really just into drinking craft beer or collecting wine saying things like, oh, we're a gang, you know, flashing fake gang signs and, you know, all of that nonsense. 
Oh, I you just, hear you just cringe. I mean, you hear it now and you're like, ugh. Next on West's list is, quote, recreational slumming, wherein mm-hmm. privileged people descend for a visit inside the mm-hmm. strange foreign spaces of othered groups. Like, I don't know, IHOP or that scary bar in the South End. Then they go home. Catchphrase, it's so ghetto, but I actually totally like it. And I just want to say, because I still see this a little bit. It's finally going away. Can we just cancel white people saying ghetto? Yes, please. Just delete it from your brain, okay? Or ghetto fabulous or baby mama, baby daddy. Oh, that just makes me want to puke. Get my nails did. All of this. Please. please. I know. I know. And I'll just add that there. this is also a very common form of hipster mm-hmm. classism, like mm-hmm. hashtag trailer trash, trucker hats, tubing in the river, drinking shitty beer, buying shotguns. I mean, some people do genuinely love these things, but plenty of people were putting on super short denim cutoffs, hanging out in a kiddie pool in their yard and throwing out hashtag mm-hmm. trailer park, hashtag white trash. And I still see that shit happening because we have not had a reckoning about class yet. And I, I think about this a lot. You know, I, I will tell you, I have lived in multiple trailers. I have relatives who live in trailers. I am in fact white trash, you know, and I'm lucky that I pass as middle-class because, you know, I'm well-spoken, but I was in this group of friends in Portland who had always kind of been like, Mm -hmm. eh, about like, some of the women in the group were doing like that weird, like I'm a sexy biker person who just flashes my boobs all the time. <laughs> yep, right. Exactly. So we've talked about in previous episodes. So I was already like, I don't think that these are my people. And they were all came from like very wealthy mm-hmm. families. And a bunch of them went to the coast. I was not invited because I was an outsider in that group for sure. They went to the coast and they stayed in this place that I actually love. And I've talked about on previous episodes called the Southwester. And it's like a resort, if you will, by the ocean. That's all these vintage RVs. It's really, really cool, actually, and very hippie in a lot of ways, you know. And they all stayed there for the weekend and they hashtagged all their photos like, Trailer trash, trailer park, you know, trash wow. life, all this stuff, and that that hurt me. I was like, I'm d- I'm done with this group of friends, you know, and I feel like I still see that kind of stuff out there. Like, why are we okay even now after everything we have all been through collectively in the past year, in the past four years since Trump was elected? Why do we still think it's funny to hate yeah. poor people? No. It's not ironic. Mm-hmm. It's not cute, you know? Number three on West's list is, quote, um, I'm a writer and I'm trying to write in here, which includes the incredibly flawed argument, quote, white kids whining that it's unfair that black people get to use it. And they're referring oh. to the N-word. What? And, quote, it's all tied up with the deliberately obtuse people who conflate freedom of speech with immunity mm-hmm. from criticism. And she actually, like, cited, like, for example, I guess Skrillex went off about this, where he was like, if I want to use the N-word, I can, basically. Oh, yeah, Skrillex. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if anybody thought about him recently, (laughs) but that guy was hot shit, right? And, you know, lastly, we're kind of going full circle here. Uh, 
the last type of just like hipster racism is, quote, God, don't white people suck, which is really saying, isn't it great that we can all make fun of ourselves while still reminding you that we're better than you? Because the concept of that humor is, well, non-white people are too stupid to enjoy all of these high mm. things that we white people love. And that goes back to things white people like, right? Exactly. Ultimately, the idea of this ironic racism was that it was funny somehow, or hipsters were showing that they were actually like down with a specific minority group because they could joke about it. I mean, that makes no sense to me, but I can see that that maybe that's what they're thinking. And Wes says, quote, you cannot unlock some secret double not racist achievement by just being regular racist. Otherwise, Bill O'Reilly would be president of the NAACP. I think that also it was like an honor to be a part, like what they thought was an honor to be a part of the hipster culture. You know, if, if we talked about, if the hipsters brought it in or talked about it or listened to that, to that type of music that was honor or it was authentic, you know, or you were cooler because you like listened to hip hop or whatever. I mean, I will tell you in the aughts, I listened to more hip hop than anything mm-hmm. else. And I hung out in a crowd of, I would say they weren't, they weren't real hipsters. These were guys who were really passionate about hip hop and they made music constantly. And some of them were Canadian, interestingly oh. enough. The Canadians just keep coming up. <laughs> and they would – they had this crew. Oh, my God. This is taking me back so much. So these guys all lived near my house in a big old Victorian – seriously, I think 20 people live there. And they would like – one time they made a water park in their yard for Dylan. I mean, they were like mm. the nicest Very cool. kids. And they were de- they were definitely rejected by the hipsters, the hipster hipsters. But they had this – Thing called House Party Revolution, HPR. And during the summer, you know, in Portland, there would be like 50 house parties every night. Like that's what everyone did because people lived in houses back then. And they would ride around from house to house putting on these like impromptu music performances. Oh, wow. <laughs> like they would just bust into a party and like just start playing music. That's hilarious. And it was really, really cool actually. And I think that they were not mm-hmm. being ironic. They were real and sincere because they totally. all still – make hip-hop now no yes exactly i feel like there's definitely it's just it's there's a level (laughs) you know there's like there's Mm -hmm. actual people that really love the music and care about and there's people that are just doing it because it's some sort of showmanship that they you know maybe that that they're seeing around that's a very hard one to define (laughs) there was this one um like show in williamsburg that was what was it? it? Was something like "Get the Whitey Out" or something? And it was this yes. guy that would just—I was reading about this. I was reading about this. Yeah, and they would just wait, play play like hip hop music, and it was like this whole thing. Yeah, it was in that hipster anyway. racism article in Wikipedia. Yeah. It was um, it was oh, called. Here we find it. Kill Whitey parties. Kill Whitey. They were parties oh. held for whip hipsters in Williamsburg, Brooklyn by Jeremy Parker, a DJ who goes by the name The Pumpsta in an attempt to, <laughs> quote, kill the whiteness inside. These were parties in which white hipsters mocked the black hip-hop industry and essentially a part of African-American culture for the sake oh, so of painful. irony. That is so oh. disgusting. I think we had less of that in Portland, I will say, at least. Right? Like, I will say that 
Portland in the aughts was so white that it was really hard to go out and even hear mm. hip hop music. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think it was insanely rampant, but it was kind of like the street cred thing where mm-hmm. like, oh, if you embrace specific things, it would increase your street cred. And therefore, you'd be an even more elite hipster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just Ugh. it was just a gross, gross. time. Mm-hmm. Really, really gross. You know how sometimes you have like forgotten about something because it is so heinous yes. that you just delete it from your brain? Well, this for me is one of them. And it was called Ghetto-opoly. Oh Do you remember no. this? So – at the time, a ghettoopoly hit the world. This is before I had moved into buying. So this was very early aughts. I was still in mm-hmm. Portland at that time. And I worked in the store and I was the housewares manager. At Urban? We get in a box. Of st- at yeah. Urban. We get a box in of stuff for Christmas. Well, I mean, we get like a thousand boxes every day. But we get in this one box and I open it. And I pull this out and it's a board game called Ghettoopoly. And I'm like... Oh, I have really, I don't think we should sell this. Like I showed it to the store manager and I was like, I'm not even going to put this on the floor. Like this is unacceptable. And she was like, yeah, I agree. Let's just keep it in back stock. And so a couple days later, this blows up in the news because, you know, people are going to other urban Mm -hmm. outfitters and seeing this. And like a news crew came into our store looking for it. And we were like, no, we pulled it from the floor when it came in. We didn't think it was acceptable. So here's the description of Ghettoopoly, which, by the way, one thing you're going to miss is that I don't have any images of it, but, like, the box, the packaging, it was all incredibly racist. The four railroad properties are replaced by liquor stores. Other properties include a massage parlor, a peep show, and a pawn shop. The community chest and chance squares become ghetto stash and hustle squares, while taxation squares are replaced by police shakedown and carjacking squares. Instead of building houses and hotels, property owners can build crack houses and projects. The seven game pieces include a pimp, a hoe, a 40 ounce, a machine gun, a marijuana leaf, a crack rock, and a basketball. Oh, wow. (sighs) I know. I know. I mean, this is disgusting. Also, unless your humor is punching up, it's just plain racism, sexism, homophobia, etc. Mm-hmm. It's why when they have like some sort of roast roasting banquet, they roast the CEO and not the janitor who cleans mm-hmm. the bathroom. Yeah. Right? Or I I hope that's how it's going. It's not funny. It's not cool. We'll be talking in the next episode about how hipster sexism was really just rancid misogyny, but I think you're probably already really picking up on a trend (laughs) here. And I guess the moral of the story is that while hipsters thought they were superior to mainstream culture Mm -hmm. and really everyone, they were actually just assholes. Mm -hmm. I'll also just say thank you to everyone who called in. I mean, obviously you gave us a lot to think about. Um, And please keep it coming because Kim and I are really committed to just like doing the aughts to death. So please remind us of all the things we're missing. I mean, I think we had totally forgotten about stuff white people like and look, it turned into a whole thing. (laughs) Uh, Plus, I think that taking a critical view of the hipster culture has been like so cathartic for me Mm -hmm. as a person who was part of that culture, but also experienced a lot of trauma and otherness within it, mm-hmm. like just as a woman, as, you know, a younger mother, as someone who grew up poor, it, it always 
I always felt like I was hanging on by a thread there. So mm-hmm. it's been good to sit back and be like validating. Oh. Yeah. To be like, mm-hmm. oh, right. It wasn't this like big, important thing that we all thought. We weren't all changing the world no. because we wore tight jeans. Now, I think reflecting on it also puts us in a state of mind of understanding who we are today mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the challenges that we might have faced because of this time period. Yes. Um, I think it was a really fun time period, but I think it definitely was kind of damaging in Mm -hmm. certain ways. So Mm -hmm. we'll get into that actually now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm about to jump into a little of it right now. Yeah. Um, so I am talking about some of the signature hipster stuff. Um, and I'm going to start here with glasses. You know, hipsters were synonymous with the chunky glasses, also called horn rimmed glasses you know, it permeated so many different parts and subsets of the counterculture that if you look at many various archetypes, they almost always come with a pair of glasses. Um, And this was actually pre-Warby Parker, you know, Mm -hmm. which launched in 2010, which is kind of surprising. Uh, It was considered a rather polarizing accessory in the aughts, one that, you know, if you listen to our other episodes, eventually found its footing in mainstream culture. So we barely stop to think about it right now. Uh, now they're accessible and cool for both corrective and fashion reasons. I mean, man and I, one of our first episodes, we talked about how we wanted these like blue, was it the blue light glasses? Cause they look kind of cool, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it actually didn't always used to be that way. Um, so where and when did this trend of horn rim glasses come from? So there used to be a really big old lame label attached to people that wore glasses. They came with a real stigma because of the nerd symbolism and stereotypes perpetuated by the media in Mm the 70s and 80s. So, Amanda, think Revenge of the Nerds in the (laughs) 1980s. I mean, pretty much any nerd that was on screen during this time period, you knew they were a nerd because they wore glasses. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Instantly. And there Instantly. was that other trope of like the girl who wore glasses and was yes. a nerd, but then she took her glasses off and she was beautiful. <gasps> and, t- and took her hair out of her ponytail. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I wore glasses from the sec- second grade on and you know, this was the 1980s and I was definitely a pretty big nerd. Mm, um, oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> did you wear yeah. glasses? Oh, for sure. I started wearing mm-hmm. them in second grade. And for like five minutes, I felt cool. Mm-hmm. And then never again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had to deflect the name Four Eyes for years until I got contacts. Mm-hmm. But I really always felt like Four Eyes didn't actually really bother me. And being mocked for wearing glasses didn't really bother me because it was such a stupid insult. <laughs> It really is. Like, so many people wear glasses. So, and like little kids wearing glasses. And it was just, just people be just kids. It was usually boys or like yeah, kind of rude yeah. girls just, you know, trying to humiliate. Um, but they, I just thought that they looked kind of stupid when they would say it to me. Um, I think, you know, some people, it could have been much more traumatizing. Um, I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I kind of deflected it which is, you know, pretty, pretty cool of me. Um, but when we got into the nineties, something really magical happened. Cool. And I quote, alternative people started wearing glasses. The underground music scene particularly perpetuated this new embracement of something deemed so dorky for so long. (laughs) And in the 1990s, alternative rock 
was sort of the precursor to today's indie rock, you know, American indie and punk movements, which had been in general underground since the early 1980s, actually during this time period became a part of mainstream culture during the mid 1990s. Nirvana really is to credit for this mainstreamification of alternative music. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other bands, you know, Pearl Jam, etc. Um, and of course, you know, major record labels at MTV capitalized on the popularity of alternative rock mm-hmm. and other underground music by signing and promoting independent bands. When this all started to happen, the shyer and more moody emo retreated even more underground to build a subculture away from the limelight. According to Andy Greenwald in his 2003 book, Nothing Feels Good, Punk Rock, Teenagers, and Emo, and I quote, this was the period when emo earned many, if not all, of the stereotypes that have lasted to this day. Boy-driven, glasses-wearing, overly sensitive, overly brainy, chiming guitar driven college music amanda doesn't that just take you back (laughs) it really really does yeah so many crushes on this type oh Oh, for sure oh for sure and very reminiscent of the aughts hipster right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh my god it makes me think there was this guy who worked at chicago comics who I only knew as the boy with the glasses, and I thought he was so cute. <laughs> and I would go in there every Saturday and buy mm-hmm. comics, and he would ring me up. Anytime he tried to make any small talk with me, I would act like such an idiot. <laughs> and I, I finally one time had a friend call the store and ask what his name was. <gasps> <laughs> but I just loved boys with glasses mm-hmm. so much i still do obviously dustin has glasses it's my type uh-huh. it started here you know it did it started here in the 90s when like alternative rock was becoming popular and we were finally seeing this other world that we never really knew existed you just didn't feel you felt disenfranchised but you didn't know why and then you started mm-hmm. seeing this new scene and it's still attractive to you you know those glasses oh, are still yeah. attractive yeah. So emo culture of the 90s and the aughts had a love affair with subversive counterculture and punk fashion styles. And within that literal frame, we got the return <laughs> of the iconic Buddy Holly style glasses that they actually called back then nerd glasses. And mm-hmm. that we now call, well, just glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Because now it's mainstream, Um, you know, as well as the thick black wayfarers that have gone in and out of styles for centuries. And there's, um, there's actually a lot of really interesting, it's more like decades, not centuries. There's a lot of um, really interesting information on wayfarers, which I'm not covering, covering in this one. Um, so emo bands embrace this trend with their vintage tees and their Argyle vests. Some even called it, and I quote, geek chic which romanticized intellectuals as outsiders. So Weezer's frontman Rivers Cuomo was a particular example of this punk counterculture geek chic happening in the emo scene. Weezer had a lot of sway in their album Pinkerton, was actually considered one of the most influential emo albums of the decade. I'm sure this is arguable. I'm sure there's a lot of music nerds on here who are like, that's not true. But anyway, um, this is just what I read. 
<laughs> it was a little bit too mainstream for me, um, but I know that his style was iconic and it propelled this look as the band's fame grew. Now, as you remember, hipsters evolved from the underground music scenes, particularly from the 90s emo. So it makes a ton of sense that we see this trend keep growing larger and larger into the aughts. Another thing that was happening was the shift in the nerd. Um, and the nerd was perceived, how the nerd was perceived by society. By the end of the 1990s, people who were well-versed in technology and computers were becoming not only accepted by mainstream, uh, but idealized. Those who were among the first to adopt new technologies and gadgets became the trendsetters, blurring the line between geeky and hip. So there was this shift as well in the trendy scene. The cool kids embraced being smart and intellectual, essentially something like nerd elitism. Hipster clothing styles became similar to the British intellectuals of the 60s and 70s. Think of Wes Anderson's signature style. And as a result, I would even argue that intellectualism and intelligence became a foundational hipster trait. Whether it was real or just implied <laughs> for the drama. <laughs> no, I do think, I mean, I think that's interesting because mm-hmm. I did feel like, you know, and, and when we've <laughs> talked about this, like being a part of that culture is so confusing because you see all this bad yeah. stuff being like perpetuated mm-hmm. amongst this group of people. But then you're like, yeah, but like they made reading c- cool, like and going to bookstores uh-huh. like a, a cool thing to do. And finally, you could wear your glasses if you wanted to, and not feel like a nerd. And uh-huh. so it's like, ah, uh, it's it's so it's so hard. And it's really fascinating to look back on with these a new perspective. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so I was saying, you know. It it, it essentially became a foundational hipster trait, whether it was real or just implied for the drama, (laughs) since hipsters often had a superiority complex. I mean, if hipsters had a superior taste, then they must have superior intelligence, right? And and as a highly consumerist counterculture, they were able to buy a presumed nerdiness with a simple yet distinct pair of nerdy-looking glasses. So, you know, I'm thinking that this created a ripple effect trend in the demand for glasses. And I'm also sure that there was this case for the ownership of a library of books, which also indicated intelligence, kind of what you were just was saying, that it made going to bookstores cool. And I remember before Kindles and iPads, owning a larger and curated library of books was very important to your personal identity, as well as which books you had. Bonus points for actually reading them. Oh, for sure. I would go over to someone's Mm -hmm. house and immediately look at their books. It was the first thing, right? And I would sometimes just take a book to a bar and see what happened, you know? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I think that minimalism then came in and a lot of people got rid of their books. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would also like to point out here that intellectual intelligence was regarded with high esteem, but emotional intelligence wasn't something that was really regarded as strongly back then as it is now, which likely played into a part of some of the toxic conditions that we endured. I agree. And I would also just say there's a caveat there too, that intelligence, like intellectual intelligence for men. But I would frequently run into situations where, I mean, like 
I am a really intelligent person. You know me, right? Mm-hmm. I read a lot. I know a lot of things. Guys couldn't handle that. You know, it no. would make them angry. It would make them lash out or I would find them trying to prove in some way or another that they were smarter than me. And yes, I mean, I'm not even humble bragging here. They weren't, you know, <laughs> like so. Yeah, it was very competitive. Yeah. And it, yeah. And it really, it really upset a lot of me. You'll talk about this, I'm sure, on the misogyny episode. It really upset male hipsters when they actually were talking to someone with some yeah. emotion, intelligence and depth. I mean, I remember one of my friends saying to me, your biggest problem is that you're too smart. And I mean, not that I agree with this at all. You invite this upon yourself oh, by cool. coming across that way. I'm like, oh, cool. Welcome to the odds, guys. <laughs> yeah, <know>? right? <laughs> right. And then emotional intelligence, I don't think that really became a part of like culture and development and like actually focusing on that until probably around the Me Too movement, right? Oh, yeah. That is a new thing too. I mean, mm-hmm. I would say that women and other femme people have been working on that for a long mm-hmm. time, but for men, no, no, definitely and not. And the main mainstreamification of it? Yeah, yeah. Like us actually yeah. having those kinds of conversations, that's so recent. Yes. It is. <laughs> it's, isn't that crazy to say mm-hmm. out loud? It is. Oh. Uh-huh. Also how these trends kind of ebb and flow and like where they come from. It's fascinating. And Kim, it's so ironic because you started talking about, you were just talking about how like emo dudes and these like smart mm-hmm. intellectual guys, like this implied sensitivity was there and it just wasn't. Like even Rivers Cuomo mm-hmm. was like a creep, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, glasses still to this day evoke a level of intellectual superiority according to literally endless numbers of studies. I'm not even, I looked, I started looking them up and there was just so many of them. I'm like, okay, everybody knows that glasses evoke intellectual superiority. I don't really need to put put a quote in there, but (laughs) I did did find some other interesting things. The popularity of the nerd look has gone as far as the criminal defense system where defense lawyers have been known to offer thick framed glasses to their clients in order to make them look less intimidating. It's actually called the nerd defense. And I mean, this concept makes sense in seeing all those <laughs> me too assholes going to court with walkers oh, and canes. I know it's so hilarious, but it makes me and mad. I, it makes you mad. And I just can't be like, that is clearly some sort of prop just to adjust oh, our perceptions and I make know. these guys look weak. Oh, like my that walker. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was like an episode <laughs> of like Arrested Development or something. It's just preposterous. I mean, I've been watching Arrested Development. <laughs> I've been watching. That's all I've been watching. Oh my gosh! It's, so, so, it's so perfect for right now. Mm-hmm. It's so perfect. <laughs> um, in the mid 1990s and early aughts, we saw some really iconic characters. Take Daria, which came out in 1997 which I think is really interesting to note that Sex in the City came out in 1998, a year afterwards. What? Who resonated with you more, Carrie or Daria? MTV or HBO? <sighs> I mean, you know, that's a tough one for me. Kind of neither because mm-hmm. I guess more Daria, but like she's so unhappy. And, you know, I'm like yeah. a really like su- – I have a sunny disposition. <laughs> you do. So- Yes, very optimistic. But Carrie is so narcissistic, you know, and yeah. like doesn't she's a really terrible friend. Uh, <laughs> remember a couple a couple years ago, you and I started rewatching uh-huh. Sex in the City. Dustin and I saw it through the end, and we were like, "Oh my god, Carrie is a garbage person." Yeah, 
Yeah, she what, is. What about you? Which one are you? Oh, Daria. Yeah. 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 You know, I can definitely sometimes have like a a darker personality sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, that just comes with the territory of growing up in the in the 90s. Um, but, you know, Daria was the embodiment of that grungy alt-rock chick, you know, the uh-huh. alternative rock, highly intelligent, disillusioned with mass culture and embracing an emo and counterculture sensibility, which MTV kind of, you know, embraced. And and that was kind of the first time you really kind of saw that in um, in, a, in a TV show, like a cartoon, I guess but, uh, Beavis and Butthead was right before that. I think it was by the same people. It was. It was. Or it's, mm-hmm. she was like a character on there, although she had a very different voice. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That is so interesting. Um, and then how about Jason Schwartzman in Rushmore? Okay. I identify with him more. There you go. There, <laughs> There is an article by Jesse Hasinger from the AV Club from 2018 that explores how Wes Anderson walks the line between nerd and hipster in his films using Schwartzman's characters. And I quote, but 20 years ago, when Wes Anderson's second film, Rushmore, was released to critical acclaim, nerdiness was still a simpler notion, one that Anderson's films have complicated, often with the help of Rushmore's star Jason Schwartzman. The article even talks about the transition of the perception of nerds saying, and I quote, in 1999, nerds were well on their way from genuine outcasts to more socially acceptable, often romanticized underdog figures who might say, get zany uh, revenge over jocks. And then in 2001, Ghost World was an amazing symbol of the disenfranchised hipsters in their infancy, embracing what she calls, and I quote, authentic 1977 punk fashion. (laughs) (laughs) The main character, Enid, flaunts the thick-rimmed geek chic glasses and vintage tees. Uh, You know, this is based on this comic book with those same thick eyeglasses um, and a character from the actual 1990s taking cues from typical uh, alternative and countercultural styles. Mm Mm-hmm. So cool and influential celebrities and musicians caught on to this glasses trend, as well as fashion influencers of the time, like Chloe Sevigny and Mary-Kate Olsen. Uh, This trend of the glasses really blew up and kind of hasn't died down. And I was reading a bunch of articles that, ironically enough, people were clamoring for them as they became trendy and acceptable to wear, because ultimately glasses project authority and bestow confidence. What is particularly interesting is is when um, they got so popular that people were wearing them as a fashion accessory without lenses, not even clear lenses. Do you remember this? Oh my god! I had I think you know what I was saying. How some things are so bad you just block them out. Yes. You know, I also just want to say uh, I had a job a couple years ago. It was a terrible job. I've mm-hmm. talked about it on the show, and I worked with this just terrible person Mm -hmm. who wore fake glasses every day. And I recently saw a photo of this person on Instagram still wearing fake glasses. Like this person had LASIK while I worked with them. Okay. And (laughs) just imagine being a grown woman wearing fake glasses. (laughs) I know. I mean, it, it. I think the blue 
blue blocking lenses has given people the opportunity to wear glasses who've always wanted to because it gives you a reason and a valid reason but if you're if you don't even if you're not if you're just wearing clear glasses or not, let alone not just clear glasses just 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 zero frames <laughs> i why are you even trying it's like a costume <laughs> i know well, out of this obsession and and high demand for glasses came Warby Parker, a game changer, democratizing glasses and making those thick frames, really actually any frame, you know, with a slight retro edge available to all. I mean, remember how expensive glasses were? I mean, they were like six, like six hundred dollars. Yeah, there, it was an expensive investment for you to be able to see things. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But Warby Parker was able to turn pretty much everyone into a bespectacled hipster and offered a more mainstreamification of the glasses. And then this nerd trend can also be seen in the media, which is really funny. Um, and two rather popular shows actually started in the aughts. The IT crowd launched in 2006. <gasps> I love that show. And then Amanda, your other favorite TV show. No. The, yep. The no. big the Big Bang Theory came out in 2019. Oh my god, one time I was flying. <laughs> I th- I want to say it was like Delta or something and yeah. it was like they only have like live TV, you know what I mean? And the, it was like you know, I don't know anything about sports. It was a day when it was mostly sports on TV and the only thing I could find yes was a Big Bang Theory like marathon on mm-hmm. TBS. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just, oh I remember God. having going on the, I had a, a gym membership and I would go on, you know, the treadmill or whatever. And there was, there would be like very little on, or if it was on, it was on one of those, those channels that had like uh, commercial breaks, like constantly, which Ugh. was really frustrating. And yeah. So the only other thing I could watch was the big bang theory. And I just be like, Oh, God, I'm like commercials to the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> like, oh I don't know. God, I know how many people have actually voluntarily chosen to watch the Big Bang Theory. So many <laughs> people. It's like it's like secret. everybody loves Raymond. Oh God. Another post-punk trend that was synonymous with the hipster was the rise of the skinny jean on men and women. The emo and alternative scene from the '90s also made it acceptable for everyone to wear the skinniest jeans imaginable. Yes. <laughs> in fact, they were really kind of the only option if you were cool in the aughts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what is also really interesting to note is that with the resurgence of the skinny jean plucked from 70s glam rock and punk movements, the denim industry worked on innovating their stretch technology. And by the mid-2000s, we had some seriously stretchy denim that could fit like leggings, which is why they were <laughs> able to scale and grow so much. They were actually comfortable. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, denim had stretch, but it was no match to the materials of the aughts. Gone are the days of having to lay down to zip them up. By 2006, the stretch was so insane that it was kind of gross and getting cheap. You could mm-hmm. add super aggressive abrasion in finishes that still would be like some sort of alien denim with a four-way stretch and like keep their whole their form. Do you remember this crap? I mean, this is like depressing me because 
I remember the first time I saw skinny jeans, I was like, they're finally here because Mm -hmm. previously I would go to like Gap or something like that, or, you know, Fred Meyer, aka Kroger, and get really small jeans and just wear those Mm -hmm. to get that the closest to skinny jeans look that I could get. But then they, I mean, it's funny, they just got so gross. Like jeggings. Remember, we jeggings. Had, oh my gosh, I forgot I about those. I remember we sold at Urban Outfitters pull on jeggings. Oh god, they were leggings that were allegedly denim, and I feel like that just ruined skinny jeans. And yeah. like, it's funny to me that they are still so popular. Yeah. They are. I mean, I think I'm actually wearing a, a form of skinny jean right now. I mean, I used to go to, yeah, like Gap. You know, it was hard to find jeans and clothes back then, especially if you didn't, if you couldn't afford, afford premium mm-hmm, jeans. Mm-hmm. I would actually buy them from Levi's or Gap and then I would sew them because um, I was in fashion design school. So I would like mm-hmm. sew them really skinny. To yeah, get that yeah, look. I would do that too. There was like a trick to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fine. And it, so it was like, oh my gosh, you're telling me I could just buy this pair of pants mm-hmm. and put them on and they'd be and perfect. And they fit. Yes. Yeah. But yes. they, every year, the quality of these jeans got worse mm-hmm. as retailers were like, we got to make them as stretchy as possible and as cheap as possible. Yeah. And they got more and more mainstream and you could like, you get them at Target, you know? And mm-hmm. that was kind of like that real cheap material Ugh. that was like almost like, it was almost, it was like a jersey, essentially. Like, got yeah. really weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of jeggings, you know, the leggings. Actually, leggings had a renaissance as well in the mid-aughts. They started <laughs> shyly sneaking onto celebrities, mm-hmm. often as capris and underdresses and denim skirts at first. But soon, people were wearing them as pants, which was really polarizing. Do it you, was. Do you remember people yelling about, they're not pants, I mean, leggings. I definitely, I'm going to tell you, was an early embracer of the leggings as Mm -hmm. pants thing. I feel like it was just me and Lindsay Lohan, and we were (laughs) out there wearing leggings as pants, and people were mad at us. But, like, (laughs) why? Because I specifically remember the one pair of leggings that I loved the most actually came from American Apparel, Mm -hmm. and they were a very thick, nice fabric, Mm -hmm. and they had zippers that went the whole way up the side that were somewhat functional, I guess. And they were heavy. I mean, they were pants, basically. Mm-hmm. And people would be angry at me. <laughs> I was just like, why? Well, I mean, today we have the yoga pants that look generally more athletic and they have like that thicker knit, kind of like what you were talking about. But a lot of times back then, it like the first leggings that existed were a very flimsy, thin material. Mm-hmm. And... um and that was a pretty bold statement to be wearing because it was almost it was you know it left nothing to the imagination essentially, and American Apparel did really push the leggings, um, and most of the the hipsters got their leggings there. But when it first started trending, before American Apparel even jumped on it, I remember you would have to go to like Macy's or Kohl's or J C Penney's or something lame and get like the Hue brand that was essentially the eighties oh version. Oh my gosh! Yes, yes. And then, then American they blew Apparel. up. Yes. They blew up. And then American Apparel finally started making them. And you could buy them there. And they were, mm-hmm. like you said, like a heavier weight. But I think They were the, nice. The first iteration were not so nice. No, no. You know, and essentially anything that American Apparel did um, as a trendsetter, um, whatever they 
did, it was then therefore deemed cool. And then it was usually picked up by the trendsetters as well. And that's just kind of how it blew up. And around 2008, that legging got edgy. The liquid legging was being seen on all the celebs. Yes. And then you had them. Yes. I think everybody had a version. I had all the leggings. Remember? Mm Mm-hmm. I had the hookup at American Apparel. That's true. You did. We made some at Oak that kind of, it was when that moto style was really yes. popular. It was like pieced I had those together. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then eventually American Apparel introduced the disco legging. Mm-hmm. And that was shot those. on all, you know, all the big party photographers were shooting those. Like you were seeing them everywhere because all the hipsters shopped in American Apparel. And then they would go to the same the same places all together with the same party photographers. And of course that trend would just keep growing because everyone's looking at the party photos. Oh my God. Totally. I remember my favorite outfit was to wear the black disco leggings mm. and like sort of just like a really oversized, like holy rock and roll tee. Yes. And then I had this white leather and fur coat from the eighties. Well, maybe from the seventies actually, it had like a tie belt and it was like very like, cocaine vibes Mm -hmm. and I would just wear that and that was like people would stop me all the time and be like I love your style imagine going out in a pair of leggings now and having someone say that to you (laughs) (laughs) no wouldn't happen wouldn't happen I know (laughs) um and I think that this trend likely had this particular velocity because it aligned with the raunch and scantily Clad mm-hmm. trends oh, at yeah. the times. For sure. For sure. Um, but yeah. So that's 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 a little blurb. I didn't I didn't go super deep on the skinny jeans because you know we know about them. We we're still wearing them. Um, I mean, I'm sad about <laughs> it. I'm sad. You don't like, want both, you don't want them? Well, I just feel like leggings and leggings. Wait, did I just say leggings and leggings? Yes. I feel like skinny <laughs> jeans and leggings. They got like ruined. You know what I mean? Mm. Like skinny jeans look really great on a lot of people. And now like they became so popular that retailers were like, let's make them as crappy as possible. It's true. Yeah. And so now they're not good. And it's like not even in most cases a good use of your money. Plus it's all plastic that's not biodegradable. And leggings. Okay. Yes. The old hue leggings (laughs) were terrible. (laughs) But. Uh, and I will say, just a side note, as a lifelong consumer of Hue tights, I also feel like they've gone downhill. That's yeah. a whole other – that's our tights yeah. travaganza episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, the original, like, cool hipster leggings of the aughts were actually, like, really nice quality. And now you would be hard-pressed to go out and find some nice leggings unless you went to, like, Lululemon or something. Mm-hmm. And I'm not about to do that. So it's just, like, their mass appeal – kind of destroyed them, I guess. Hmm. So I'm sad. I'm sad about it, guys. I mean, I still wear them. I like them. So Yeah, I'm d- like a yoga pant kind of person now. You know, that's just where I am. I really? like a boot cut. Oh, interesting. I actually know. I actually really like a wide leg cropped yoga pant. Mm. Like basically a culotte, I guess is what I'm saying. What, is this what you're culotte. wearing right now? No, you know, I'm wearing like a dress and I'm wearing like a vintage dress and yes. stuff. Yes, that's what I figured. <laughs> I was like, you're not wearing, I'm like, I rarely see you in bottoms. No, no, just to bed mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, well, finally, um, 
the last of my trends is pouring one out for PBR. Um, and I think before I get into talking about PBR, it's worth a mention that there were endless trends in the drinking culture during the 2000s because hipsters embraced a more party and social lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was actually the core of their activities. I also would argue that FOMO originated with the hipster. It was a time to to see and be seen. The party culture was so pervasive and being a scenester was basically an achievement. There was an elitism, of course, as to which parties you were invited to and could get into, even who you know. Like if you knew the people at the door, if you knew the people at the parties, if you knew the party photographer, all of that. Um, uh, at, at least this was actually the case in New York City. I don't know if it was the case everywhere else. Um, and so all of this, along with the party photographers and feeling like you were missing out on all the fun was the recipe for FOMO. Yeah, I agree. Because before that, you didn't see photos of parties Mm -mm. until like weeks later because someone got them developed. You know, last night's party. Like what party did I miss? What party did I not get invited to? All those things. Um, you know, that being said, I know there was also a significant trend in alcoholism in hipsters Mm -hmm. or just Mm -hmm. a basic difficult relationship because it was such a pervasive element. Um, I think the lack of good role models and the endlessly increasing opportunities to drink, schmooze, get your photo taken by a party photographer and live it up, um, oftentimes with free booze from a liquor sponsor, made it a really easy, slippery slope, which is still disrupting people to this day. I mean, I remember I was on dating apps last year, and I would say like 50% of the people on there were sober. Because you had to mm-hmm. claim how much you drank at the profile. And it was kind of a shocking number. I was I was always shocked to see how many people were sober. And I have a feeling a lot of it comes from this time period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people do you know now that are sober? I mean, it's so interesting to see. I mean, I think about this a lot, actually, because, you know, we're at that point. We obviously, even pre-COVID, we're not like party monsters anymore. Oh. But you and I both know people who never stopped, mm-hmm. who are – they are alcoholics. They were alcoholics back then, but we didn't know because we were all drinking together. And I still know a lot of people like that who I'm like, oh, gosh, I hope they stop soon. But then I also know a lot of people who are sober because they were like destroying themselves. You know, and around mm-hmm. maybe 2015, 2016, they realized it. Uh, I do feel like I, – I wonder about that a lot. Like, did previous generations drink the way we drank in the aughts? Because it wasn't just the hipsters even. And when you see that, all you got to do is watch a couple episodes of Rock of Love and you'll, like, know what I'm talking about. The binge drinking, yes. Yeah. And I was wondering – because, like, you and I, you know, we saw the, like, you know, like, Revenge of the Nerds frat party era movies of Mm -hmm. the 80s. And so it seems like being, like, a binge drinker in college was, like, always a thing maybe. Um, But were people, like, drinking like that into their 20s and 30s in the 90s? And I mean, it's also about accessibility and affordability. You know, there was a ton of bars. And and then there was also just events, music shows, art Mm -hmm. gallery openings. um, I mean, literally, literally, house parties, all of those things that made it just 
it was just every single night. It was everywhere constantly. Oh, dude, I had like a schedule basically mm-hmm. of the things I would do. And I mean, there was just too much going on, mm-hmm. you know? It was a wild time. I just wondered if everybody was drinking like that in the 90s because I feel like – I don't know. The I drinking don't think was so. Wild. The drinking I, was yeah. wild. I would be at work and people would like have to go sleep in their cars during their lunch breaks. All right. Well, so in the early 2000s, Pabst was in the throes of a real slump in sales. In the 1990s, they were closing breweries and in financial trouble. They didn't really have their finger on the pulse of culture. <laughs> Shocking. And we're targeting their demographic of 45 to 60-year-old men with no indication of trying anything new. There was a young, hungry divisional marketing manager named Neil Stewart who had heard word on the street that, and I quote, alternative people, which is what basically pre-hipsters were called um, in the 90s, <laughs> alternative people, <laughs> In Portland, we're actually drinking significant amounts of Pabst Blue Ribbon, like to the point that um, it was really the brightest spot in the national sales report, besides a few other whispers of some other alternative people in other cities. I mean, that was kind of where they were seeing these little bumps. Everything else was basically just flat or down. I mean, Kim, this was real. There was uh-huh. right after I moved to Portland. I went to Fred Meyer. This is yeah. like an episode about Fred Meyer. This episode <laughs> brought to you by Fred Meyer. And uh, this was like the really cool Fred Meyer where like you would run into the people from Dandy Warhols and stuff. Oh, yeah. And they had, Kim, an entire aisle, refrigerated aisle that was just PBR. Wow. And there would just be a guy there stocking it all day. And I never had PBR before I moved to Portland. Uh-huh. It was so bizarre to mm-hmm. me. I thought it was from there for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> what year was I mean, that? I want to say the first time I went to Portland as an adult, because uh, you know my my dad and my family live out mm-hmm. there too, was like two thousand two. Okay, that's like prime PBR time. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. it was I. I was like, what? Like, what is the deal here? And you would just look and every single cart had a case of PBR in it. That is like at the checkout. Fascinating. The national sales report talked about these alternative people. So Neil jumped on a plane and went and talked to the alternative people (laughs) in Portland. (laughs) And they shared a very distinct reason and insight. They hated marketing. Uh, And I think it's definitely a little bit more than that, but they hated marketing marketing and they hated being marketed too, which was really eye-opening and foreign to the marketing landscape at the time. So Pabst took a rather unconventional approach to build on this trend that appealed to the new wave of trendsetters. It's essentially a form of anti-marketing. So Neil would go to these bars in Portland and unlike his competitors, just wear basic street clothes and sit in a booth. Word would get out that the Pabst rep was there and hipsters would go to him and ask him for swag. The brand was considered authentic, cool, kitschy. So swag was actually considered treasure for hipsters. Completely unheard of back then. The Mm -hmm. intangible brand value was gaining credibility and gaining more value in these really important trend-setting circles, and they were kind of supporting it in a really underground way. 
So it turns out that within this group of alternative people in Portland, there was a large population of bike messengers that had embraced the beer they so fondly called PBR. And Paps actually underwrote cycling contests organized by the bike messenger community. And instead of taking the mainstream approach of drenching the event in advertisement with some dressed up Russ reps hustling at the event to hand out product, Paps did the exact opposite. They put up <laughs> zero banners they had no messaging and they sent no one <laughs> to be their advocate. And the <laughs> bike messengers loved the considerate anti-agenda angle and in turn drank more PBR. And this appeal just blossomed overnight. As additionally, these alternative people, of course, are hipsters and hipsters fetishized authentic lowbrow and blue collar culture of the seventies and eighties, which basically epitomized PBR, you know, um, it also didn't hurt that it was cheap with so much FOMO and social events. It got really expensive to go out and PBR offered a much cheaper yet still cool alternative, thus appealing to the young kids in basements and skate parks everywhere. PBR scarcity and cheapness also helped make it an underground darling. And because of its failing sales, it was a rather scarce product. Um, so lo and behold, in 2002, Amanda, sales of the beer, which had been sinking steadily since the 1970s, actually rose 5.3%. And that was only the start. The upward trajectory kept growing, and PBR was even endorsed in the 2003 seminal work of hipster culture called the Hipster Handbook. Do you remember? I mean, I remember that, and I mm -hmm. gosh, I remember it so clearly. Mm -hmm. But it it is true that at least in Portland, every good show was sponsored by PBR, mm -hmm. and every event, and we were even. This is so gross. There was this very common punch that you might have at a real rager where you take one of those huge plastic tubs yes. that you put your sweaters in, you put in – you would empty a case of PBR in there. You put a thing of frozen pink lemonade concentrate in there. Whoa. You know, like the – do they even still make that stuff? I don't even know. And then a handle of vodka. Oh, and my God. And stir it up and people would dip their cups in there all night and get – wild that's <laughs> hilarious and it was called disgusting. it's disgusting it was called pink panty pull down i don't know who <gasps> came up with that name and i swear to god kim i got like dysentery or something from a party <laughs> where we were drinking that and i remember dipping my cup in there and being like there's like weird brown stuff floating oh. in there and someone was like it's no big deal yeah. just drink it and they did and then I was like sick for like a week like oh. digestive ill I swear <laughs> it came from that but it was really refreshing mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty like watered down you know like it was yeah. an easy yeah. beer to drink yeah totally <laughs> um so subtlety yet ubiquity became their specialty. I mean, every party I went to had Paps, just like you were saying. Mm -hmm. It was so easy to get a sponsorship. That was the the place you went for a sponsorship. And it was hard to get sponsorships mm -hmm. from other places. Um, so as not to alienate the growing and loyal fan base, Paps had to try new ways of marketing that also didn't look like they were marketing at all. They needed to be perceived as an underdog and stay untarnished and authentic as a blue-collar beer who could care less. 
not a large corporate entity trying to manipulate the situation. <laughs> so they turned down, they turned down a lot of opportunities, like even some big pricey deal with Kid Rock, um, which uh, honestly could have actually been a nail in the coffin since hipsters I didn't know. associate themselves with Kid Rock. Yeah. Jeez. And it was probably pretty hard to turn away from marketing execs. Um, but they said no, and they stayed micro and they supported small communities of hipsters without asking for anything in return. But what they got was continued loyalty. So each small event, art gallery, skateboard, movie screening, um, yeah, skateboard, movie screening, music show, opened the brand up to more trendsetters. They started an ambassador program as well um, in, an, in like kind of all the small, cool cities with kids in the know that could hook them up with more local events and continue to expand their underground network. In 2003 was kind of the peak of their grassroots marketing efforts, and nearly half of their workforce was involved in these efforts, including reps that go and convince local bars to carry their beer. Because like you said, it was kind of hard to find the beer. So there was a lot of groundwork that had to be done to bring that beer back into you know bars. But there was a demand from the young, hip clientele. So the brand became a part of the subculture, a political statement and drink of choice for the disenfranchised, ultimately playing an important role in the hipster party and drinking culture. But like most hipster stuff, PBR eventually went mainstream in about like 2013, 2014, as did the hipsters themselves, come to think about it. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. an interesting reference point in Onion to Peel to consider was that because of sex in the city cocktail culture that was thriving during this time period, like the Cosmo that literally blew a whole industry open and created not just trends in the cocktail industry, but like everyone was doing a Cosmo something like cheesecake factory did a Cosmo cheesecake. (laughs) And during this time I remember, and it's probably one of the reasons why dive bars became so big, but I remember Mm -hmm. this, really kind of cool, like bougie bars starting to open up in Madison. Um, and they had that same sticker shock that came with the price of a Starbucks coffee. Did you hear that a cocktail bar opened and each cocktail was $12? I remember this specifically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We had a couple places like that in Portland and it was like scandalous. Scandalous. You could would not be caught dead in there because that was no. for like a specific mainstream culture that likes sex in would, the city. You would not be caught mm-hmm. dead drinking a Cosmo. No. <laughs> Even if you secretly watched Sex in the City like I did. Exactly. We all did watch Sex in the City, but we we didn't associate it with it. And hot take here, I don't even think Cosmos are good. No, <laughs> so. they're not that great. <laughs> so like the raging popularization of these high-priced cocktails, the counterculture countered with the cheapest beer in the supermarket. <laughs> and another thing to note is that the yields kind of started creating their own version of the high ticket Cosmo with mixologist and hipster oh, cocktail bars popping up. It's true. It's like I forgot about the yields. The yields <laughs> and mixologists. Basically, mm-hmm. they took this high price cocktail and they were like, well, we can do it better because obviously they're elitists. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, so yeah. you know you couldn't get a cocktail, but you could get a sixteen dollar old fashioned with some like super old timey sorcery. <laughs> and case in point, micro brews and craft beer also grew during the uh, Growlers, yes. remember growlers? Those were available. Do people 
still drink a lot of PBR? No, the it has it has subsided substantially when it went mainstream. Yeah, that makes sense. That but I think sense. people we- still do because it still it still has a kitsch quality, and people still want a cheap alcoholic alternative, and they'll still get it with PBR. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I you know as you know. I prefer the smooth, mm-hmm. low-carb flavor of a Bud Light seltzer. Yes. I'm going to go cheap. So I, I think that that has probably hurt the sales substantially. I'm sure. But PBR was like weird beer water. It was. So, <laughs> <laughs> so why not just have a seltzer mm-hmm. then? It was like it was like bad breath. It was like just a, a can of bad breath. Oh, God. <laughs> think about having some Cheez-Its, a Hershey bar, and then a, a PBR. Doritos and hurt you. <laughs> Oh, Cool Ranch Doritos, a Hershey bar, and some PBR, and you are ready to make out. (laughs) Put on your leggings and get out there, right? (laughs) Well, I have I have a joke for you. Okay. Uh, Why do hipsters wear scarves in the summer? Oh, I don't know. Because they want to wear them before it's cool. Oh, wah, wah. Wah, wah. I know. <laughs> but look up any article about hipster style or even take a quiz of of the nature of like how to tell if you're a hipster because mm-hmm. there's still a ton of them out there, believe it or not. And they all include one mm-hmm. key accessory, the scarf. Uh-huh. Now, Kim, were you a scarf wearer in uh, the aughts? I know you're not much of a scarf wearer now, obviously. No, a thousand percent. And not only was I a scarf wearer, I was a scarf peddler. We <laughs> sold so many scarves because we had the stores in Williamsburg, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. course, and we sold every kind of scarf under the sun. It was actually one of our highest margin items. And particularly, you'll probably get to it, that um, Pakistani scarf oh, we'll get to was it. something that, that we popularized. We were one of the only places that you could get it before you could get it at like Urban. So I can't figure out where the love affair between hipsters and scarves began. I I mean, I've Googled this so hard. I will say, and I mentioned this in the last episode, that in the very early aughts, like 2002, 2003, 2004, in Portland, we called the Dandy Warhols rock and roll hipsters the scarves. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I guess I was part of that to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But I always preferred a nice vintage neck scarf, neckerchief, because I have longer hair mm-hmm. and it's much more mod, which was my thing. Uh, but men and women alike in the scarves group wore scarves of some sort, maybe a neck, <laughs> yes. like often vintage, like I was wearing. I think what, I, you know, I think what we were talking about where there was like, um, it was like the intellectuals of the 60s mm-hmm, and 70s mm-hmm. that kind of came with that look with the scarf and the blazer. Totally, totally. And that was the look of the hipster when I moved to Portland. So like mm-hmm. uh, the like the like 70s action slacks for men, you know, or very, mm-hmm. very slim fitting jeans and like beetle boots. And these men yeah. were not re- wearing sneakers very often or they were wearing Converse maybe. Definitely blazers, like Nehru jackets, that kind of stuff with the scarf. Yeah. yeah. And um, and it's still to me, it's still a really strong good look, to be honest. Well, I mean, I've I've been re-watching there there was this uh, YouTube uh, video series called The Berg, which I've been re-watching, and it is 
so on point and so hilarious. And it was based in Williamsburg, right in the neighborhood I lived in, right at the time I was there. And everything they talk about and everything they wear is just hilarious and typical and just amazing. I highly recommend it. You can still find the it Berg. on YouTube. I gotta check it out. The Berg. And you and I and it reminded me of the blazer just being worn a blazer and the um and the scarf. Oh and like oh, a for sure for polo sure shirt underneath your blazer. God I even mm-hmm. I wore so many blazers in this era. So many blazers. So many. I still love a blazer. For several years in the aughts uh, in like peak peak more mass scarf era, I managed the scarf business at Urban Outfitters and it was like all (laughs) caps on fire. Like Mm -hmm. we'd be like, let's double the sales plan. And then I would like exceed that. Then we double it again. And we Mm -hmm. just could not sell enough scarves. They were, I, I was like begging people, how do we get them here faster? What can we do? I'm going to need 10,000 units, (laughs) this kind of thing. It was scarves all day, every day, every day. And it could I could basically make any kind of scarf, mm-hmm. any kind of print, and it would just blow out. And so there were eternity scarves. Remember those? Which mm-hmm. are like just one long loop that you wrap around your head. Absolutely. Uh, uh, snoods, mm-hmm. which would slide up over your head a little bit more. I, I used to like fly with like a, a kind of like snood, and I would put it up over my head so that you couldn't, I couldn't see anything. <laughs> I mean, I that's just, a like, good idea. That's a good idea. Tunnel into my snoot. Mm-hmm. I even did this like hat that had a huge scarf built into it for winter. Oh so you just God. like mummify yourself. Skinny scarves that were mm-hmm. like metallic with long fringe. We had this scarf, which I, I tried to find a picture of this on the internet. I, I could not find it. The technical name like in the system was the striped nubby scarf. And we sold them. Mm. I th- I wrote $14 in the notes, but I think it was actually $10. They had these like all kinds of different colored threads in them and like Lurex. So they were like metallic-y. And uh, we sold thousands of those every month for years. Like every other month, I would send the vendor a new set of Pantones and we'd roll in another one and it would sell out as fast as we got it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, even Pashminas had a moment in That's that right. era. I mean, we just... Everyone was wearing scarves mm-hmm. all the time. It didn't matter if it was a square, an oblong. Everyone was buying them all. And I would even do like really complicated scarves where I was like, okay, this is a woven scarf, but all the fringe is gold chain. Love mm-hmm. it. Sold. You know, like, <laughs> just any 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 scarf I could dream up, I would get it made and someone would buy it. It was bonkers. Like mm-hmm. I still can't believe it. Um the desert scarf, aka, mm-hmm. and I'm going to totally blow this, even though I watched videos on how to pronounce it. The kafia or the shamog were like the mm-hmm. signature scarf yes. of the white urban hipster dude. It's yeah. actually, according to Wikipedia, it is a traditional Arabian headdress, or what is sometimes called a habit, that originated in the Arabian Peninsula and now is worn throughout the Middle East region. Mm-hmm. You know it when you see it. It's like a geometric pattern, two colors. The pattern is woven into the fabric. So if if that part of the print is black on one side, when you flip it over, that part will be white. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. The white hipster appropriation of the style mm-hmm. in the aughts was incredibly controversial and, of course, wildly tone deaf, as as we hipsters like to do it. Yep, of course. And it was made even worse 
when places like Urban Outfitters started selling it under a hot <gasps> new name, the anti-war scarf. And oh, I wow. remember the day this happened. So we did not sell the scarf in women's. I worked in women's accessories. This was a men's scarf style because it was primarily a, a guy thing to wear, right? Mm-hmm. But I remember the day that blew up. And I, my desk, you know, it was like open seating was kind of right outside the GMM's office. And she was screaming at someone all day about it. So I remember that day really well. And they, the reason it was a problem is because they were calling it the Mm anti-war scarf. This is especially ironic, if you will, because outside of white hipster culture, this scarf is actually seen as a symbol of Palestine solidarity. Mm-hmm. So it is to call it the anti-war scarf. I mean, it's so tone deaf. I don't even know where yes. to begin there. They pulled it down. I don't know if they ever put it back up. I'm not sure what happened there, but don't worry. Plenty of hipsters found other places to have them. I mean, you said you sold them at Oak, right? Yeah, we sold them. Definitely. We were one of the first yeah. First appropriators <laughs> to sell them. And I mean, we sold just hundreds and thousands of them. Oh, my gosh. Go to a, an XX show in that era. Mm-hmm. Every dude was wearing Perfect. one. Yep, exactly. <laughs> uh, Chromeo show, perhaps. You might see yes. it with some super deep Vs. Yes. <laughs> was yes, with the super deep American apparel V. Yes, yes. yes. Oh, my gosh. I have... I can and, this and the American Apparel hoodie that is underneath a blazer. Yep. Yep. Totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. I was trying to think of some other hot accessories of this era. Uh, fascinators. I mentioned that before. That was like not a huge trend, but it was part of party photos. And it's those like vintagey hats with like feathers and stuff on them. Mm. Um, this really was driven, as far as I could tell, by people like Lily Allen. It ca- kind of came from the UK and was popular right. among a, a certain type of party girl here. Um, arm warmers. <laughs> do you remember mm. those? <laughs> God, yes, I do. That's another one where I'd be like, just bring back the arm warmer from last year. Here are the Pantones. Just, <laughs> just make them. <laughs> Just bring it back. Uh-huh. Um, berets. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate to say this. Eventually fedoras. Oh, yes. Yes. I uh, do remember. I do remember that. Yeah. It was very popular. Yeah. Um, uh, what a time to be alive. Well, uh, also the ye olds had their own little accessories like suspenders. Mm-hmm. And um, if you went to a ye old cocktail bar, they would wear those like the sleeve um, oh yes, yes. I don't, I, for some reason, when you said fascinators, I thought of that, but I don't know what they're called. I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah. They would wear those. They would mm-hmm. have a bow tie, probably. Oh, the bow tie. How did we forget yes. that? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then there were like messenger bags. I mean, we've talked about bike messengers, but like messenger bags were mm-hmm. like the bag for quite a while until it shifted into backpacks. Like mm-hmm. the backpacks. I mean, that didn't happen until like 2010, I want to say. Um, everybody, anybody who was anybody had a messenger bag at that point. And like that's where brands like Chrome came up, you know. Uh, also, that's making me think of a brand that I don't think exists anymore that we sold at Urban called Triple Five Soul. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Yes. Remember them? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what else we were into. We sold Alexander Wang bags like no one's business. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. 
We did sell. I felt like that time period actually is when people started to be okay with like a faux leather purse in a way that they had never mm-hmm. been before also, mm-hmm. which is gross because they are like not – they don't they don't last it's final, the customer, it falls apart. But they yep. sit, yeah, they sit in the landfill for like a thousand years, the mm-hmm. drawback. Yeah, we definitely were like, oh, people want to buy fake leather bags now? Okay, let's make them, you know? Um, Man, you know – oh, I've got another one. Those like – cigarette metal cigarette cases Mm. you remember those Mm -hmm. that was another one just always on reorder interesting angel wing earrings we sold a lot of these weird wing earrings and like weird necklaces that like had like a tusk or a horn or something on them oh yes of course anything animal oh i think we would sell these uh these rings that had like it was like an antler or a wolf oh yes Yes, I had a wolf necklace. Mm-hmm. Wore it forever. I mm-hmm. probably have pictures of it somewhere. That was also the era of brooches, like a nice oh. flower pin or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot. I'm sure I, I could unpack more. Yeah, yeah. And we're specifically talking about like hipster things to wear. You know, obviously there were tons of other trends. We used to sell this brand and actually we, we could not keep it in stock. It was called um, Castifices and they were um, – it was – necklaces that um that were like a codeine pill or oxycotton pill yes i remember those there mm-hmm. was also you know like nameplate necklaces were pretty strong in the aughts too thanks to sex in the city mm-hmm. uh casio watches yes yes the calculator mm-hmm. ones for sure and the gold mm-hmm. ones i feel like that's when we saw the rise <laughs> the slow rise of wacky socks like you know, like oh, socks that were like it started. Socks. They were argyle or something, and they turned into like mine has marijuana leaves. Yeah, well, mine has sriracha. You know, yes, yes. <laughs> we have more hipster content coming next week when we're going to talk about, as we mentioned, the dark underbelly. Even though we kind of we're talking about it constantly because it turned constantly. out it was a huge underbelly that kind of wrapped uh-huh. around. <laughs> it was so many underbellies within a giant underbelly. It was just like. <laughs> It was like a mama, a mama dog underbelly with a bunch of puppy under uh, underbellies, and then uh, under, under them were, were were like even smaller. I don't even know. I'm, it was know like I'm puppies having puppies. There were just so mm-hmm. many underbellies. It was like mm-hmm. an infinite number. Um, so yeah, we have a lot more to talk about. Uh, if you, as Kim mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you have a story to share with us, something you think we should cover, please hit us up. We want to cover it all we want to be like the place to go for hipster trends <laughs> yes yes because everybody's dying for it yes everybody's asked yes. for it it's definitely it, in demand it's time it's time that we break it all mm-hmm. down it's been like really fun and interesting to do it mm-hmm. and to do it with a bunch of distance yes exactly well thank you so much thank you bye, bye.